I'm good. We are into our last message of a four-week series on the case for Christ. And uh, I have mixed emotions about it. It's been a good journey for sure, going all the way back to when we rented out the movie theater. And uh, we all saw the movie. You can still go see it. I think it's around in a few places. And uh, then we jumped into small groups as well as Sunday mornings and really sort of dug into understanding, is there a case for Christ and him being who he claimed to be? And so we finished that out here today, and we're going to be talking about explaining the good news of Christ. Now, it is family day. How you doing, kids? You all right so far? Is it boring yet? I'm sorry we didn't have the white marker board things. We don't know where they went. From our last time, they just sort of disappeared. So we're going to try to track them down. We've looked everywhere. But, you know, you can just pay more attention or, I don't know, just lean on your mom or dad. But uh, we are going to let the kids lead us off with this last week's message. A few weeks ago, um, uh, Serena uh, Travis uh, did some interviews with some kids and put that together. Some of you were involved in it. And so they are going to help us as we step into this last week on explaining the good news of Christ. Easter, Christmas, your birthday? No, it's our neighbor. She had a baby. Her name is Baby Ruby. She just got born right after we had dinner with them. I Yes, I clean my room and now I can walk in it. It's spring break and I get to be off of school. We're hatching chickens. We went camping. There's 14 actually. And I met lots of neighbors. I rode quads and dirt bikes in the desert. Go to the zoo. We are moving into our new house. We just came back from Yosemite and didn't get a bear attack or get mauled. We built sandcastles and then we go swim in the ocean. Um, we just sold our house and we bought a house in Texas. We went to the Zumpy Park. There's good news. The big good news for the world is that Jesus is our Savior. dead and he resurrected because he rose again it was just amazing because like not a lot of people it's not like every day like when someone dies they raise from the dead only jesus is because he's god's son and that's just like really special and amazing to me he rose from the dead because he wanted to save us from our sins like, wow, I never knew Jesus could do all of this. For God for God to love the world that He gave His one and only begotten Son. For God to love the world that He gave His one and only begotten Son, and whoever will. That He gave His only begotten Son, and so God will love the world. All right, but please start from here. For God to love the world that He gave His one and only begotten Son, and whoever believes in Him. Have eternal life. John 16 says that for God to love the world, that He gave His one and only Son, and anyone that would believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life in Christ Jesus. John 3:16. great. God is here. Come see God. 
I tell you what, we're going to be doing videos of the adults now and see how well you can answer those kinds of questions, right? You might have some of the, I don't know, that's a pretty tough one, right? No, I tell you what, um, from the young age to the old age, God has called us to proclaim, demonstrate, and explain the good news. But how many times in that understanding do we not know what the good news is? Now, the kids summed it up great in the verse that we're familiar with, with John 3.16. Let's read this together and 17. You ready? Here we go. Kids, you got it? It's right before you. You good? Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him through him. Amen. That sums up the gospel in one type of dimension. But I find it striking that many times we do not know how to explain the good news, what the good news is, or as it's referenced in scriptures, the gospel. So if you were put on the spot, what's the gospel? What's the good news? Would you be able to come right back and be able to articulate it? And how would you articulate it? Would you articulate it in the sense of, uh, God sending a son, Jesus, down across for you. I remember uh, growing up that we used to have a, a little packet called the four spiritual laws. And the four spiritual laws started out that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And in, in true sense, that's true. But many times the good news um, has not held its own, especially in our culture today. And it's really just become sort of good advice. Here's some good advice. Let me share with you. You ought to do this. You ought to consider doing this. You ought to. But in biblical times, post-resurrection, the good news was a proclamation. It was a huge announcement of something far more than just good advice. Far more than just, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It was even far more than even what John 3.16 states, though John 3.16 was part of the greater proclamation of the good news. The gospel, we can explain it this way, is a public announcement of good news whereby the God who made the world has rescued the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Comprehensive. Big. All right? Now, in those days, they would um, proclaim good news like if there was a, a new emperor, Nero or Tiberius, announcement, oh, or their birthdays even. They would proclaim in the public square some good news, all right? Even it was understood in that day that uh, if you were to repent and believe, the idea of repent and believe was not, you know, in the sense of, oh, just sorry, sentimentality for what I've been doing. This. No, repent in that day was a changing of mind, a changing of the way of thinking. The way that you're thinking is not the direction to go. You need to change your way of thinking and then you need to believe in a new direction. You need to believe in a new emperor. You need to believe in a new king. You need to believe in a new way that life really is. Well, our world today desperately needs good news. Our world needs today the gospel, the gospel of scriptures, because we have a world that is broken, a world that is desolate, a world that is destitute. And in that are people who are broken, destitute and desolate. Even successful people will find themselves going through the course of life. And over the course of life, you start to realize that if you're not dialed in to what God is doing, Life in this body, and this mind, without a relationship with God and the good news, is one that will lead to brokenness, discouragement, ultimate despair, maybe a very narcissistic life. And so we have good news to proclaim that there's a new emperor, there's a new king. You see, Jesus, he was proclaimed when he was teaching as the one who was the son of David. But after the resurrection, the resurrection proved everything that he had taught. And so instead of just being the son of David, he truly was the son of God, God himself. He was King Jesus. Remember what they put on top of the cross? King of the Jews. So you go back into this culture and there's an understanding that's far bigger than sometimes how we've shrunk 
the gospel today to simple good news about you. I like how N.T. Wright puts it. He's a great New Testament theologian. He says this, the good news is primarily that God, the generous God, the loving God is being honored, will be honored, has been utterly and supremely honored in the life, death and the resurrection of Jesus. Where does that definition of good news start with you? No, it starts with God. The God who created the world, the God who oversees this world, the God whose heart grieves because of the brokenness of the world, that God is being honored because of what Jesus Christ did, his life, his death, and his resurrection. N.T. Wright has some other words that he sort of articulates on this. I'd like to just read a few of them to you because it's, it's important that we get outside of a small concept of what the gospel is. If we're going to be explaining the good news of Jesus Christ, then we have to understand the bigger picture of what the good news is. N.T. Wright says this, somebody asks, what is the good news? Is it the atonement? Is it the coming of the kingdom? Is it, is, it, is it all of the above? In Paul's letter, the good news is the crucified and risen Jesus is Lord or King of the world. The good news is not a message about you. It's a message about Jesus. Now, of course, because it's a message about Jesus, it is when a message it is then a message about you. But if you say the gospel is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, per se, this makes it incredibly me centered. The gospel is Jesus Christ is Lord. The crucified and risen Lord, Jesus, is the Lord of the world. And under that great statement, there is all the room for you to find new life in the present and in the future. There is all the room for you to find new work to do in the kingdom. But that's the gospel, the message about Jesus. I read a book a couple years ago that I really liked by the name of Scott McKnight. He's sort of a student of N.T. Wright's as well as Dallas Willard and some people. And it's the simple title is The King Jesus Gospel, The Original Good News Revisited. It says contemporary Christians have built a salvation culture, but not a gospel culture. Too many Christians have reduced the gospel to the message of personal salvation. The King Jesus gospel makes a plea for us to recover the original gospel as good news, which is still new and still fresh. The gospel is defined by the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15 as the completion of the story of Israel and the saving story of Jesus. And McKnight here, it says, shows us that the gospel was preached by Jesus and that the sermons in the book of Acts are the best example of gospeling in the New Testament. I want to encourage you to do gospeling. And the gospeling is a proclamation. It's an announcement. If you think that explaining the good news comes down to you getting all fearful and scared, like, how do I, how do I tell the people? It, friends, just back up. Understand that you are not trying to persuade, manipulate, or coerce anybody. You are merely just giving a proclamation of the good news that God in Jesus Christ is reconciling and restoring the world and that this Jesus, who you've identified with, if you're a Christ follower this morning, is the king of the world and he is redeeming all things. It's a proclamation. A proclamation. But a lot of times we think in terms of the gospel as a very me-centered thing rather than a God-honoring, a God-centered thing. And it begins with what God's doing in the big picture, the big epic stories we sometimes refer to it. And you've got to dial in, and once you become a part of that bigger epic story, then fulfillment and meaning and purpose comes. But it starts big, and then it becomes personal. I don't think that he's here this morning, Josh, if I'm correct, but when you arrived this morning, there was somebody outside, correct? He, he, he stepped away? Okay. What was his first name? What was it? Frank. Oh, Frank, Frank. Frank slept out by the cross last night somewhere. Homeless young man. Had a skateboard. So I come in and, and Josh says, hey, I brought him in. He's in the bathroom trying to encourage him a little bit. And, and he's laying 
on those three seats in the back by the sound booth. Just head buried. So I never even saw his face. And uh, so he must have slipped away. And I don't have any idea what the guy's story is or what's going on with him. But I thought today, you know, what we're doing here today is we're proclaiming good news. We're proclaiming good news, big picture. Honoring to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that story makes a difference for Franks in our world. And whether you're laying flat on some church chairs on a Sunday morning, having slept off whatever overnight sitting outside, or whether you've reached the pinnacle of what you perceive would be a successful career, and it started to let you down, and inside there's a sense of aloneness, destituteness. The good news is that God has a place for you in his kingdom that is now at hand. Oh, that kingdom isn't visible, right? And we've shared about this before. Look at all the brokenness in the world, right? But that kingdom has come to change hearts and lives. And as those hearts and lives will change, Jesus will come back again someday as he declared. And he will make all things that are wrong totally right in the physical realm as well. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, he is king. And he needs to be proclaimed as the Lord. Lived, died, crucified, rose again from the grave, ascended to the heavens, sent his spirit back into this world. He is coming again. That king, Jesus, gospel is what we need to be explaining because it does change lives and it changes worlds. How about yours? Has Jesus changed your life? If he has changed your life, then you've got good news to share with someone else. If you've got good news, why would you keep it to yourself? If you had a great raise, if you won some jackpot, if you were able to maybe step into a new home, or maybe your kids just blessed the socks off of you because they did something totally incredible, you would want to share that. So why do we have this awkwardness about sharing good news? Well, I'll tell you why there's awkwardness. Because there's a battle still going on in this world. And the adversary, Satan himself, he doesn't want you stealing any more people out of his kingdom and putting them in God's kingdom. And so we have to understand there's a real battle going on. So we take arms and we, we uh, lock together and we begin to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? I love Romans 10, 13 through 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how can anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news, who go gospeling. But not everyone welcomes the good news. For Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from hearing. That is hearing the good news about Christ. First Peter 3.15 Strong exhortation to you and I both. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. But means that it's going to come, right? There is opposition because there's a spiritual battle going on that you and I need to be the people who... Declare the gospel, both in action and in word. We need to be those who they say, blessed are those who come. Are the feet of those who come with good news. I think it was a couple years ago, we uh, in this church did a um, series on how to share the good news called Walk Across the Room. Some of you remember that? It means just get up. You got to walk across the room at that social event or whatever that workplace party is, you know, and and just bridge some conversation. And we talked about building a three-story, uh, having a three-story building 
How does all this work? Well, it works this way. You just don't barge into somebody's life and say, Jesus is alive! Right? That's a little, oh my gosh. If you're listening to this on online, you probably just got blown out of your home or your car. It's understood that if what the gospel's about is the restoration of the broken relationship, how we're alienated with God, from God, that we have to build relationship with people. Now, you can proclaim in a setting like this, but ultimately, even if you're new today, which I'm glad you're new today, if you've come, that's great, um, you are getting a read on who I am. Like, is this guy okay? Can you trust him? You know, is he really being authentic? Is he just a showman? Whatever. You're making some value statements related to who, um, who God is because of who I am as a presenter. So if you're going to talk about having a relationship with God, then you have to have relationships with people. And if you have relationships with people, you probably are going to start not with God. You're going to start with how you doing? Who are you? What are you doing? You're going to start with their story. So if you want to be an explainer of the good news, then you need to start with people's story. That's very easy for us. In fact, you know many people's stories. In fact, you can get to know some more people's stories this week. Jennifer and Jay Hoffman live in our neighborhood. And uh, Jay, he walks around the neighborhood um, walking the dogs. And... um, Every time I see Jay walking the dogs, I feel guilty. Not because I should be walking my dog, though somebody should walk my dog. But I think, wow, he is building all these relationships in the neighborhood as he just walks and talks to people with their dogs outside. And Jay probably knows the names of people far up and down the street that I have yet to know because I just sort of moved in and I haven't gone out there walking my dog yet. And I think to myself, you know, that's where it starts. Just walk in neighborhoods. With dogs, what's your story? Building relationships. You want to be a gospeler? You want to be a proclaimer, an explainer of the good news? Build relationships. Intentionally build relationships. Not because they're your projects, but because God's interested in them. He didn't do what he did for just you. He did it for all people. So you start with their story, but then you go from their story to your story. And your story... You should have that one down because you've been there. You know it. It's not foreign to you. And your story may have to deal with brokenness. It may have to deal with success that lets you down. It may have to deal with, you know, relational problems, family-wise, marriage-wise. Otherwise, you may have chemical dependencies, other kinds of things that God's worked you through in life. You have a particular story, and God's gifted you that story, believe it or not. And you can share that story. And so you start with their story, you move to your story, and it doesn't have to be in the same setting by any means. Some people, yak, 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 they'll talk away about their whole life all the time, and they'll say, see you later. And you go, okay, I guess guess you're really interested in my life. You know, been around people like that, huh? No, you're going to build, but somewhere they're going to say, well, where are you from? What do you do? You know, what's happening in your life? So your story comes into play at some particular time, but then there's going to be opportunity to be able to share his story, the story of Jesus and the good news. Now, we've been in this series about Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel um, was an editor for the Chicago Tribune, a law editor. And uh, as you know, his wife became a believer, a follower of Christ, and he set out to disprove that. And many years ago, he wrote this book called The Case for Christ. Some of you read it. Some of you went to the movie that just came out that's about this. When it comes to putting these three together, their story, your story, his story, wouldn't it be nice to have a book like Lee has? Or wouldn't it be nice for them to do a movie? And then you could just sort of use that movie. Well, I doubt if anybody in here will get to that kind of place too much. Maybe a book, maybe not a movie, right? But I want you to listen to Lee Strobel as he's speaking at a conference. And i got a couple segments. I don't know if we'll use the second one here this morning. But the first segment is him dialing in to this aspect of story. And it's a good way for us to sort of sum up the series a little bit, but also grab a hold of this 
aspect of how do you and I explain the gospel of Jesus Christ, you put it in story form. And he does a great job of doing this in just a few minutes, aside from the book and aside from the movie. Josh. Everybody enjoying the conference? Thank you. I, I've enjoyed it. I always, uh, I love learning. I, I, I thought Sean's talk was terrific, and uh, I learned a few new things there. I do a similar talk or on a similar topic, and I thought, oh, that was a good point. Let's get that down. That was good. So I have the opportunity to kind of close things out. And I thought, well, you know, what would be the best way for me to do that? What, what's the, what approach, uh, you know, may as we conclude our time together? And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do something simple. I'm just going to tell you a story. It's a true story. It's my story. And it's a story that begins in atheism. Because I concluded at a, at a young age, as a teenager, as a matter of fact, initially, that God does not and cannot exist. I thought that God didn't create people, but people created God. Why? Because they were afraid of death. So they came up this idea of a, of a heaven and this benevolent jelly bean in the sky of a God. And, and I thought they just made all this stuff up to make themselves feel better about dying. That's what I thought. I mean, I thought that the mere concept of an you know, all-loving, all-knowing, all powerful creator of the universe. It was crazy. It was absurd. It wasn't even worth my time to check out. Now, granted, I tend to be a skeptical person. My background's in journalism and law, so you can imagine to put those two things together, we're kind of a jerk, that, skeptic, <laughs> that you get. I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, and we used to pride ourselves on our skepticism. You know, we didn't want to accept anybody's word at face value. Boy, always tried to get two sources to confirm a fact before he'd print it in the newspaper. So we actually had a sign in our newsroom that said, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. How do you know? Maybe she's lying. Got any proof? Got any data? Got any evidence? Of back? That's the kind of skepticism we had. And you know what? That's a good thing, isn't it, for journalists to be skeptical? You want that, don't you? My problem was my skepticism morphed into cynicism. And it, it spilled over into my spiritual life. And so because I, I had no belief in God, I, I really lacked a moral framework for my life. I'm not saying all atheists are like this. I'm, I'm just saying for me, the most logical conclusion from the idea that, okay, there is no God. You know, that means there is no accountability ultimately. There is no afterlife uh, there are no eternal consequences and so. And so my conclusion was the best way to live my life was as a hedonist. Just pursue pleasure. This is all you get in this world. So that was my number one goal in life, to bring maximum pleasure into my life. And so I lived a very immoral and drunken and profane and narcissistic Really self-destructive kind of a life. I mean, what was my life? There's a lot of anger inside me. A lot of rage inside me. If you ask me back then, you know, what are you so mad about? Tonight? Why the rage? I couldn't have told you, but I know now what it was. I was always after the perfect high. I was always after that ultimate experience of pleasure. And guess what? Everything let me down. Nothing lived up to the hype. So I had a lot of rage. I remember once my, my, my wife was there and we got in an argument and my old daughter was there. And I had so much rage, I just blew up. I remember I reared back and boom, I kicked a hole right through our living room wall. And my daughter's crying and my wife's crying. It's like, that's my life. In fact, I'm going to tell you the ugliest thing about me. Which is when my little daughter, Allison, was just a toddler. If she was alone in the living room, you know, playing with some blocks or toys or whatever, and she would hear me come home from work through the front door, her natural reaction was just to gather her toys and go in her room and shut the door. Is she going to be drunk again? Are you going to yelling and swearing and, you know, kicking holes in the walls, screaming, you know? At least it's nice and quiet in here. Friends, that is the ugliest truth about me. My wife was 
kind of in spiritual neutral agnostic i don't know where she was really she didn't couldn't put the spiritual stuff quite together and and so one day we moved into a condo outside chicago and the woman downstairs linda was a christian and she became best friends with my wife leslie and it was very natural for linda to talk to leslie about jesus because Jesus is such a part of Linda's life. And Leslie wasn't hostile toward this stuff. Nobody had ever told her this stuff before. So she asked questions. She went to church with her. After many months, she came up to me and said, Leah, I made a big decision. I said, what? She said, I've decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, oh, no. I mean, for an atheist, this is like the worst possible news you can get. I thought she was going to turn into some sexually repressed prude or something, you know. Spend all her time on skid row serving the poor or something. I didn't sign up for this. So it's not part of the original deal. Honestly, first word that went through my mind, divorce. I, I was just going to leave. But I stuck around. And what, what, what really amazed me was in the following months, I began to see positive changes in her character and in her values and the way she related to me and the children. And it was winsome and it was attractive. And so finally one Sunday morning, I'm sleeping off a hangover and she's getting ready to go to church. And, and she looks at me and she says, Lee, why don't you come to church with me today? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go. Get her out of this cult, you know, that she's involved in. So, so, so I go with her to this church meeting in a movie theater about a mile from my house. And the pastor gets up to preach. And he's a young guy. I don't even think he was shaven yet. Um, his name was Bill Hybels. And he gave a talk called Basic Christianity. And I remember sitting there as a skeptic, and it was like one after the other, he was just knocking down my, my misconceptions about the Christian life. And so I remember walking out that day saying two things. Number one, I was still an atheist. He did not convince me that day that God exists. But number two, I realized, if this stuff is true, this has huge implications for my life. You know, duh. So, so I decided that day I'm going to take my legal training, take my journalism training, and investigate, is there any credibility to Christianity or any other world religion. And I launched on what turned out to be a nearly two-year investigation of the evidence. Now, as I began that investigation, one thing became very clear to me very quickly. And that is this. If, if you want to determine, is Christianity true, and therefore every other contrary faith system in the world false, if you want to get to that issue, all you have to really do is answer one question. You know what it is? Did Jesus, or did he not, return from the dead? That's the ballgame. Why? Because Jesus, in a variety of different ways, directly and indirectly, made transcendent and messianic and divine claims about himself. He claimed to be the Son of God. At one point, he got up before a group and he said, I and the Father are one. And the word in Greek there for one is not masculine, it's neuter, which means Jesus was not saying, I and the Father are the same person. He was saying, I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in nature. We're one in essence. And how did the audience understand what he was saying? They picked up stones to kill him because they said, you, a mere man, are claiming to be God. So Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, but so what? I could claim that. Paul could claim that. Anybody could claim that. But if Jesus claimed to be the Son of God died, and then three days later rose from the dead? It's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth. The Apostle Paul recognizes this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, where he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And so this is the ball. Everybody enjoying the conference? Thank you. I, I've enjoyed it. I always, uh, I love... So it's a good summary of some of what we've been on the journey of. Where he takes that talk is into what he refers to as the four E's. The four E's are some of the journey that we've been on in these last few weeks. The first E was the execution. Jesus really did die. It wasn't faked. Romans knew how to crucify and kill people. Right? Second E was uh, early accounts. That the records that we have are so reliable that it's just overwhelming that these were accurate records. And the third E has to do with the empty tomb. You've got to explain the empty tomb. It was there. Everybody knew it was empty. Even the enemies tried to explain it away. And then the fourth E is the eyewitnesses. The overwhelming number, 515 or so eyewitnesses that the Scripture itself recorded that saw Jesus alive. And even... Uh, records outside of Scripture gave reference to the proclamation that Jesus was alive. And so if you are going to tell 
your story. Your story needs to be couched in the understanding of how you uh, used to think, used to live, and then what began to happen in your life that woke you up to truth, that woke you up to the gospel, the good news of what God's doing in the world. And then how you wrestled with that. Maybe you didn't wrestle with it. Maybe you do. All right? You are just going to share and explain the good news in the context of your journey. Now, in that context, text, there's going to be scriptures that would be helpful. Maybe they were helpful to you and you'll be able to pull them out. Maybe you feel awkward in being able to share some of the, the, the harder issues or maybe there's questions that you don't know how to answer. You can always encourage somebody and, and give someone resources. In fact, I was reading back through part of the case for Christ this week and I thought, he really wrote this well. It's sort of engaging because he's telling about going through 13 different interviews with key people, professionals, you know, inside and outside the faith, trying to disprove that Jesus rose from the grave. It's, it's really captivating. Take it. Give it opportunity. There will be substance in the middle of the, your story where you start to bridge to his story that you need to be able to articulate. It was interesting. I think it was a week or just a few days into this series. I had a knock at the door. Dog starts barking really loud, which my dog does, which good. That way, if you don't hear the doorbell, you know that somebody's there. And But it was at the it was one of those inopportune moments, and you're like, oh, really? Okay? And so you look through your peephole. Is anybody scary? Right? And you open the door, and lo and behold, the Jehovah's Witnesses has already found me after living there for three months. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses are good people trying to find their way, but their truth about his story is incorrect. They do not believe that Jesus was, in essence, God himself. Okay, We won't go into that. We can articulate, debate that. Some of you may even come from that background. Maybe you have some JW friends or family members that you're praying for, trying to encourage. But you have to move to his story, and you have to understand fully well what his story is. Now, what I did with them was I just say, the dog's going crazy here, those kinds of things. But I almost wanted to bring them in and sit them down. If I would have set them down, you know where I would have started? It would have been awkward for them. Part of me wanted to go straight to the jugular, right? Jesus, who do you think Jesus is? But I want to connect with them. And I would say, how long have you been doing this? This is great work that you, you get out and try to encourage people, make them think about spiritual things. What's some of your story? I'm wanting to know where they're at. I'm wanting to build a relationship. And then the best way for me to couch the truth is to couch it into my understanding and my journey and then point them to Jesus. But time didn't tell to do that, so I don't know if I'm on or off their list or what's going on. Now, it's interesting. Yesterday, I had another knock at my door. I'm like, okay. I got it, hun. We're good. Dogs barking. Look out the window. Two guys, red shirts. I'm thinking, okay, salesman kind of deal. You open the door. And I see immediately on their, on their shirts, Teen Challenge. You know what Teen Challenge is? David Wilkerson, Teen Challenge, Christian organization, uh, helping pull young adults out of difficult places in life a lot. And they immediately, hey, we're not selling anything, doing that. We're just, you know, in the neighborhood and, and trying to raise some support um, for Teen Challenge. And I went, Teen Challenge? I know Teen Challenge. Church I came from, we used to have a whole section of Teen Challenge girls because there was a group home nearby, and they would all bring them. They were part of our youth ministry. They'd sit in a section over here. And I tell you what, Baptism Sunday, some of the most powerful baptisms that I've ever experienced is when some of the Teen Challenge girls stood up to give their testimony about what God did in their life. Radical stories, transformation, right? What do I do with them? I'm like, come on in. Well, one guy he goes, hey, could you have to fill up this water bottle? <laughs> I could tell they'd been out going, come on in, interacted with them, gave them some drinks, gave them some snacks. We talked a little bit. I gave one of them a book, that kind of way. I sent them on their way, encouraged them, got some information about them, that kind of thing. And I'm thinking, you know, what is it that, you know, we're moving, that you have people going from door to door and they're proclaiming, what are they really proclaiming? Are they proclaiming truth or are they pro proclaiming error? You want to make sure when you get to his story that you do have substance and you do know truth. And we could take a whole another couple of weeks on this, but I'm just going to exhort you to work hard at understanding how you can articulate the story of what God 
has done in this world through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting in Lee's story, though, about the friend, the person that befriended his wife. In the movie, her name's Alfie. In real life, her name was Linda. She lived in their condo. And you think in terms of what Linda did in befriending Leslie Strobel. Think of the impact Linda had, is having, because she just took the initiative to get to know someone else's story in her condominium. She shared her story, and she pointed Leslie to the story of Jesus. Leslie's life was changed. And Leslie, it was sort of cool last week when you used the clip in the film of where it comes to, to Lee praying the prayer, you know, and, and he didn't know how to pray, awkward, whatever this is. But he explains, looking into her eyes, you just need to know it wasn't about the evidence only. It was you. It was you. It was your life. I watched your life and how things changed. Friends, the biggest apologetic, the greatest defense you have for the gospel being true is your life. You can have the four E's down, you know, the execution, early accounts, empty tomb, and uh, eyewitnesses, and go through those and, and articulate, answer questions. In fact, on your way out today, I want to encourage you to, to, to pick up another one of these answer booklets because maybe you're just going to give a booklet like this or, or go online to Amazon and get this book for someone. I don't care. And so there's substance that's there, but the reality, it's not just the answers to people's questions. It's the reality, the living reality that you are communicating with your life, Jesus or not. And here's Linda. Did that with Leslie. And Leslie, that influenced Lee to become a Christ follower. And now what does Lee do? He writes books that are New York Times bestsellers. And he's had a movie that just comes out. And he's a speaking, a teaching pastor at a church in Texas. And he travels. All that influence that Lee is having, including the influence he's had on you this week. And I met with someone this week, great conversation. And they said, hey, I saw the movie. And that movie started to cause me to change my way of thinking. Has made me interested in things about Christ. That individual, your lives, many others, all the way back to Linda. You may think your impact is small, but you change one life that can change the trajectory of others. You get to heaven and you're just dumbfounded. Really? You came to know Christ through that person who came from that person, that person? That's how God works. And it's simply articulating stories. Ultimately, the greatest story, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, as recorded. It says this, Matthew 5.13, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is it, salt, if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. A little bit of confusing. How does salt lose its saltiness? We think of a, a tabletop little salt shaker. Well, in those days, salt was big packages of stuff, and it was used not to just make food taste better. It was used to preserve food. There was no refrigerator, so you would pack stuff in salt to preserve it. But if that salt had lost the saltiness and all that was left was dirty, granular kind of things because it was a you know sort of a polluted, corrupt kind of mix, then what good is it to pack your meat in a bunch of dirt? So there's where the whole idea of saltiness. You've lost your saltiness, your aliveness, your, your thing of being excited. Woo, God is here. He is alive. He's in my life. But you are the salt of this world. And the transformation and changes of all the ills that we see around us in our world are going to come back ultimately for the change that Jesus Christ is able to do in changing hearts and lives. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue because it's a sin issue. Right after that, this is Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words, You are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. 
I want to read for you a, a letter from a non-believer. This non-believer actually had written this letter uh, to Lee Strobel. And in this letter, she explains that she had been at churches uh, that had sort of harmed her or caused her difficulty. The Christianity I grew up with was so confusing to me. Even as a child, people said one thing but did another. They appeared very spiritual in public but were abusive in private. What they said and what they did never fit. There was such a discrepancy that I came to hate Christianity and I did not want to be associated with a church. She went ahead and went to a debate that Strobel was at and from that debate was able to um, start to engage more. And she said this in a letter to him. So when I came to the church and to my group, I needed gentleness. I needed to be able to ask any question. I needed to have my questions taken seriously. I needed to be treated with respect and validated. Most of all, I needed to see people whose actions match what they say. I am not looking for perfect, but I am looking for real. Integrity is the word that comes to mind. I need to hear real people talk about real life, and I need to know if God is or can be a part of real life. Does he care about the wounds I have? Does he care that I need to place need a place in life? Can I ever be whole and be a healthy person? I've asked questions like these in my small group, and I've not been laughed at or ignored or invalidated. I have not been pushed or per- pressured in any way. I don't understand the caring I've received. I don't understand that the leaders don't seem afraid of questions. They don't say things like, you should have had faith, or you need to pray more. They don't seem to be afraid to tell who they are. They seem genuine. And then she writes this kind of poem. As a non-believer in the place that she was. Do you know, do you understand that you represent Jesus to me? Do you know, do you understand That when you treat me with gentleness, it raises the question in my mind that maybe he is gentle too. Maybe he isn't someone who laughs when I am hurt. Do you know, do you understand that when you listen to my questions and you don't laugh, I think, what if Jesus is interested in me too? Do you know, do you understand that when I hear you talk about arguments and conflicts and scars from your past, I think, Maybe I am just a regular person instead of a bad, no good little girl who deserves abuse. If you care, I think maybe he cares. And then there's the flame of hope that burns inside of me. And for a while, I'm afraid to breathe because it might go out. Do you know, do you understand that your words are words, are his words? Your face is his face to someone like me? Please be who you say you are. Please, God, don't let this be another trick. Please let this be real. Please. Do you know, do you understand that you represent Jesus to me? Isn't that powerful? How many people in your networks of relationships would agree with that poem? Who do you have touch with to explain the good news of Jesus Christ? Who are you called to be salt and light to today? that maybe no one else will touch base, or even if they, others did, it's your calling that God's called you to step in and to interface, to tell your story after you've heard their story, and to be able to articulate God's story. Maggie's what's described as a seeker. Some people aren't seekers. They don't really care about truth, so they're just off doing their own deal, and that's fine. You can just sort of still love on them, care for them, be there for them. But God has put in the hearts of each and every person a hunger to know Him. And this life will lead you desolate and destitute and alone because this body and this mind left unto itself without a connection with the transcendent God, you will head in directions you never want to even think about. Maybe you were there and God brought you back. Maybe you are there now and I'm here to share with you the good news just as surely as we've exhorted each other to share the good news that Jesus Christ came to set you free. The work's been done. Maybe it's that person that's in the condo next door, the house next door, the work cubicle, 
maybe the buddy you've been hanging with for a lot of years and you go out and play sports with. Who is it that God's calling you to be salt and light to? Maggie, she ended up committing her life to Christ. She told Lee Strobel, and he was like, oh, man, what, what, what brought you across the line? Was it some of the evidence, or it was, you know, was it this or that? And she said, no. She said, well, the reality is I just met a whole bunch of people who were like Jesus to me. That's what brought her across the line. Do you know, do you understand that you represent Jesus to me? Instead of closing with a song, I'm going to have us watch the last part of that talk that you saw from Strobel. I'm going to ask the ushers if they pass the offering baskets to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings. But I think it's good to just hear the conclusion again of Lee Strobel's story as we finish out this case for Christ. Because here's the reality. His pursuit was a genuine, real pursuit of wanting to know truth, even though it started out to discredit his wife and to get her out of the cult that she was in. He had an open heart. If you remember in the film, and it's true also in the story of Lee and Leslie, there's a scripture that's used that says that God can take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. No one that you're trying to work with to proclaim and explain the good news will come to Christ if they are locked into their stoniness. But if they begin to seek God, he will turn their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. As they pass the offering baskets, and you go ahead, I want us to just watch the ending part of his talk to these people that day. And it just reminds you all over again the reason to celebrate that God does redeem not only individuals, but he redeems families and he can redeem worlds. Friends, I studied this stuff for two years of my life. And it all came down to a Sunday afternoon. And I went alone in my room and, and I thought, I gotta I gotta reach a verdict. I mean, I feel like I've been stuffing my head with all this stuff. It's evidence. I gotta I gotta I gotta reach a conclusion here. So I thought, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna just take a yellow legal pad and just summarize the evidence I've encountered. So I did. I took it and I started writing it out. Page after page after page after page after page after page. And finally I put down my pen and I said, well, wait a second. In light of the avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. <laughs> I'm just saying. And so that's when I reached my verdict. And my personal verdict is... That Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, but he backed it up by returning from the dead. And then I thought, am I done? Because it was, a, it was honestly, it was a little anticlimactic. After time, I thought, that's it? That's it? I mean, that's all there is? I was kind of let down. But then I remembered a Christian friend pointed out a verse to me earlier. John 1.12. So I got a Bible, I looked it up. It says, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And I noticed something about that verse. Extract the key words of that verse, and it forms an equation of what it means to become a child of God. Believe plus receive equals become. So I did believe, based on the historical data that Jesus you know, claimed to be the Son of God, backed it up by returning from the dead. I got that, but I realized that was not enough. I had to receive. Receive what? Receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased on the cross when he died as my substitute to pay for all of my sins. And when I would receive this free gift of his grace, then I would become a child of God. So I got on my knees next to my bed. And I poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality that would absolutely curl your hair. And at that moment, I received complete and total forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And I became a child of God. And my very first thought, I got up off my knees, my very first thought was, um, hey, I should probably tell Leslie this. She might be curious. 
I didn't know. I, fig- I figured she'd be interested. So I-, I walked out of our room, and I walked down the hallway, and I looked in the kitchen, and there was Leslie standing behind the kitchen sink. Remember I told you about my little girl, Allison? She was standing in front of Leslie. She was almost five years old by then. And she was standing on her tiptoes and stretching out, and for the first time she was able to touch the faucet. So I walked down the hallway, I looked in the kitchen, Allison said, Daddy, Daddy, look, look, I can touch it, I can reach it. I said, wow, you're really getting big. And she ran off. And I turned to Leslie and I said, honey, that's how I feel. I said, I feel like for the last two years of my life, I've been reaching out and reaching out. and re- I just touched Jesus. He is alive. He is resurrected. He is the Son of God. I just gave him my life. And she looked at me. And she burst into tears. And she threw her arms around my neck and she said, You hard-hearted son of a Baptist! I've been telling you this for two years! Hello! <laughs> no, I'm kidding. She didn't really do that. <laughs> I wish she had done that because that would have been hilarious. That would have been hilarious. But that's not Leslie. She, she burst into tears and she threw her arms around my neck. She said, oh, honey, I almost gave up on you a thousand times. She said, when I was a new Christian and met some women at church, I told them about you. I said, I don't have any hope for my husband. He's a hard-headed, hard-hearted legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. He will never bend his knee to Jesus Christ. And she said, this one elderly saying, put her arm around her shoulder, kind of pulled her aside. And she said, oh, Leslie, no one is beyond hope. And she gave her a verse from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26, that says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And unbeknownst to me, during that whole two years that I was on that investigative journey, my wife behind the scenes, was praying that verse for me. And can I tell you what happened? Starting on that Sunday afternoon, now that I was a child of God, and then over time as I was baptized, as I learned to read the Bible with with fresh eyes, as as I learned to worship, as I learned to pray, as I became part of a church, God began to answer her prayer because my values changed and my morality changed and my character changed. And my attitudes and my relationships and my parenting and my marriage. I mean, all these things began to change over time for the good. So much so that my little daughter, Allison, think about that. Here's a little kid, five years old. All she knew the first five years of her life was a dad who was absent, angry, coming home drunk, kicking holes in the wall. That was her entire experience for the first five years of her life. But starting on that Sunday afternoon, you know what she did? She watched. Something's going on with dad. Something's happening with dad. And she listened and she observed. Something's going on. And she watched. And it took about five or six months. And then one Sunday morning, she came up first to her Sunday school teacher and then to Leslie. You know what she said? I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. And at age five, my little girl gave her life to Jesus Christ. And today she's, today she's, she's married to a graduate of the master's degree program in apologetics at Biola University. Together they write children's books about God. She is the mother of two of my four precious grandchildren. And we are the best of friends. Same thing with my son. My son saw the difference God was making in our family at a young age. And he came to faith and he he took an academic route. He got an undergraduate degree in biblical studies. Then he went to Biola, to Talbot Seminary at Biola University got his master's degree in philosophy of religion. Then he got another master's degree from Biola in New Testament. And then a couple years ago, after many years of research and study, he was awarded his Ph.D. in theology from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And now you know what he does? Now he's a professor at a major university where he teaches young people about Jesus Christ. Because he said, Dad, there's a whole generation out there, you know, my generation. They don't get it yet. They don't understand. This isn't based on wishful thinking and and, and legend and mythology. This is based on a solid foundation of historical truth. And I said, son, you've got your Ph.D. now. You go tell your generation. Friends, God changed my life. 
He changed my son. He changed my daughter. He changed my wife. And we just recently celebrated our 41st wedding anniversary together. So that's, that's my story. If you stand with me, I'd like to just pray a prayer over us because I believe God has called us, yes, this week, to be able to proclaim the gospel. Not just for us as adults, but kids, you did a great job today. You see that even in his testimony, at a tender age of five, his daughter made a commitment to follow Jesus. And I know many of you have as well. You can influence your friends to love Jesus too. God, I pray on this morning that you would not only empower and equip us as your messengers of the gospel, but Lord, you would open our eyes to see the relationships around us that we can influence for you. God, whether it's brokenness that's visible or brokenness that is hidden, you have us in touch with